From American Public Media, this is Soldiers for Peace, a podcast about the GI and veteran anti-war movement during the Vietnam War. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Kate Ellis. Just a note of caution. Some of the material in this program contains graphic descriptions of violence. The Army today ordered a general court-martial for First Lieutenant William Calley, Jr. on six charges of premeditated murder in the deaths of 109 Vietnamese civilians. In November 1969, Americans began learning of a massacre committed by U.S. troops in South Vietnam. It happened in a hamlet called My Lai. The villagers' version of the incident was given by survivors yesterday. They said a patrol of 100 Americans stormed into the hamlet, drove all the residents out of their huts, then opened fire with automatic weapons. The slaughter took place in March 1968. For more than a year, the army kept it secret. Since the story of the alleged massacre first broke, a number of former soldiers in Vietnam have come forward with eyewitness reports. How many people do you imagine were killed that day? I'd say about 370. How do you arrive at that figure? Just by looking. Well, men, women, children? Men, women, children. Babies? Babies. All of the people of My Lai tell the same story. Their hamlet was destroyed deliberately by Americans. Investigators found that American troops had killed more than 500 Vietnamese civilians in My Lai. Soldiers took several hours to carry out the mass killing. They took breaks to eat and smoke cigarettes. Americans were shocked. Some of them thought the story was a hoax. But many GIs and recent vets were less than surprised. To them, what happened in My Lai was an extreme example of U.S. military policy in Vietnam. They had witnessed, or even taken part, in some of the very same actions. News of the My Lai massacre pushed some veterans to go public with war atrocities they saw and committed in Vietnam. They hoped to increase opposition to the war by telling the truth about what was happening there. Meanwhile, active-duty GIs used their own strategies to disrupt, to sabotage, and to openly protest the war. Events in early 1970 pushed a new wave of veterans and GIs to join the anti-war movement. Good evening, my fellow Americans. In April 1970, President Richard Nixon spoke to the nation on TV. Ten days earlier, he'd announced a plan to withdraw 150,000 American troops from Vietnam. But this message was different. Nixon warned that North Vietnam was using Cambodia, a neutral country bordering Vietnam, to stage attacks on South Vietnam. He said the enemy had to be stopped. In cooperation with the armed forces of South Vietnam, attacks are being launched this week to clean out major enemy sanctuaries on the Cambodian Vietnam border. As President Nixon spoke, American and South Vietnamese troops were massing on that border. We take this action not for the purpose of expanding the war into Cambodia, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam and winning the just peace we all desire. The anti-war movement erupted, especially on college campuses. On May 4, 1970, 1,500 students were demonstrating on the campus of Kent State University in Ohio. The National Guard moved in on them. First, the guardsmen lobbed tear gas. Then, they opened fire. Four persons, including two women, were shot and killed on Kent State University's campus today during renewed demonstrations involving hundreds of students. 
The university was ordered closed. News of the Kent State shootings sent even more college campuses into chaos. Authorities used tear gas to control rock-throwing crowds at such scattered locations as the University of Wisconsin, the University of Buffalo, and the University of Texas. Students weren't the only ones reacting to Kent State. Vets came out out of the woodwork. Vietnam veteran Jan Berry was on the campus of Syracuse University when he got news of the shootings. He says students there instantly went on strike and that hundreds of vets showed up to protect them. We're going to make sure that nobody's going to get shot on our campus if they have to come through us. Barry says Kent State outraged a lot of veterans. The government told them they'd been in Vietnam to fight for democracy. Watching it get violated at home was unbearable. That outrage drove many of them to the peace movement. Bill Earhart was one of them. Earhart got out of the service in June of 69. That fall, he enrolled at Swarthmore College. It was a major anti-war school. At first, Earhart didn't get involved. He was too messed up by his experience in Vietnam. He drank, he did drugs, and he told himself that the war had nothing to do with him. Up until the murders at Kent State, that was the thing which I finally began to understand that I had brought the war home with me, that it was my problem, that they were killing us. Now it's not enough to send us halfway around the world to die. Now they're killing us in the streets of our own country. Earhart had what he calls a nervous breakdown. Sat on the street corner on Route 320 for I don't know how long, sobbing my eyes out. And uh, when I finally got done crying, I couldn't cry anymore. I stood up and I walked up to the student center and I gave my first anti-war speech. After that first speech, Earhart was recruited by peace activists. They arranged for him to speak at a Rotary Club luncheon. Students invited him to join them at demonstrations. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, an Army veteran named Bill Branson was going through a similar transformation. Branson was attending a community college in Southern California. He was no fan of the military, but he'd never actively opposed the war. Kent State changed that. I just absolutely despised these National Guard jerks that fired on civilians. So I I got a black armband and, and started wearing it around the campus. Once campus peace activists spotted Branson's armband, they invited him to their meetings. There, he met Barry Romo. Romo was the soldier we met earlier, the guy who tried to take the injured Vietnamese girl to the hospital. Pretty soon, Branson and Romo were consumed with anti-war work. Branson says they worked closely with civilian peace activists. We had the advantage of a gigantic anti-war movement to be involved in and to help educate us and support us and to say, yeah, we want you guys there. They treated us like human beings. The relationship between the civilian peace movement and returning veterans was not always easy. But one of the greatest myths about anti-war activists, according to historian Richard Stasewitz, is that they frequently heckled and spat on returning soldiers. That whole image of the spat-upon veteran returning was really something that was developed in the 1980s with the Rambo films and other things. So it became, you know, a trope in popular culture. It wasn't my war! You asked me, I didn't ask you! And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win! And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting! There was no such evidence of attacks on veterans in this kind of way. I always found that the civilian anti-war movement people were very welcoming. In fact, in a way, they kind of made us into heroes. This is David Courtright, one of the active-duty GIs who openly protested the war. You know, we were 
tentative, uncertain, you know, didn't know what we were trying to do, but we were trying to speak out against the war. Really, they were so helpful and supportive. And then when we go to the anti-war rallies, people would thank us, uh, not thank us for our service, thank us for our protest. And they put us at the front of the march. Anti-war GIs weren't just protesting in marches. They also rebelled back on base. A new phenomenon has cropped up at several army bases these days, a so-called underground GI press, which consists largely of anti-war newspapers. Military authorities are clamping down hard on the papers. The brass were clamping down because the underground papers encouraged resistance among the troops and advertised anti-war gatherings they could attend. More than 300 underground newspapers circulated on American military bases worldwide. There were even papers on Navy ships. Marine Sergeant Paul Cox secretly published a paper at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. I polished my shoes and I showed up every day and did my job and then would go in at night and work all night on this, uh, <laughs> on this paper. And we would go to Chapel Hill where we would have it printed up under the table, load up a car with it, and then uh, drive on to base at midnight. Keeping a lookout for military police, Cox and his crew dropped the papers throughout the barracks. The men could have been jailed if they were caught. Cox says he took the risks because some guys in his unit committed a massacre, and he stayed silent. Cox felt ashamed. The underground paper was his way to start speaking up. Collectively, all those anti-war newspapers really had an effect on the military because they saw their their discipline and their unquestioning obedience of, of the enlisted troops coming apart. There was as much rebellion and dissent within the military by 1970 as there was on most college campuses. This is historian Christian Oppie. And this, of course, included every sort of rebellion imaginable by, you know, putting peace signs on your uniform or not saluting or refusing to carry out an order or uh, sabotaging a tank. Another thing that impeded America's war effort was racism in the military. For a good part of the war, African Americans were more likely than whites to get drafted and to see combat. They were less likely to be officers. And while desertion as a form of rebellion was increasing across the military, it was particularly high among black troops. Race is an important factor in explaining so much of the growing dissent against the Vietnam War, and African Americans were among the first to understand and to call to attention the racial politics of that war, Uh, first by raising questions about why they were being sent in the name of freedom and democracy uh, to fight in Vietnam when those same rights were being denied them at home. Another factor in the GI Rebellion, drugs. Recent surveys estimate that well over 50% of the soldiers in Vietnam use marijuana. You get really stoned. Then, you know, who like who cares about the war? <laughs> this war. It wasn't just pot. Heroin and opiates were also widely available. David Courtright says drugs, record-high desertions, and troops refusing to fight added up to what he calls soldiers in revolt. In 1975, he wrote the first full-length study of troop rebellion and dissent. And then the the worst and most horrible manifestation of this revolt was the fragging that took place. Fragging was an attack by a GI against a superior. Soldiers fragged officers they viewed as racist, reckless, or incompetent. 
Courtright says this happened hundreds of times. So it was a manifestation of just how deep was the rebellion inside the ranks and how bitter was the atmosphere. The U.S. military was increasingly dysfunctional, but the war dragged on. Back home, veterans felt a growing urgency to tell Americans what was really happening in Vietnam. They believed that if Americans knew, they would demand an end to the war. My name is Joe Galbally. I'm 23. I served as a PFC in the 198th Light Infantry Brigade from October 16th. In January 1971, more than 125 veterans convened at a hotel in Detroit. My testimony will deal with the gassing of hungry children, the use of scout dogs on innocent civilians, the indiscriminate leveling of villages, killing of livestock, and pollution of water supply. Vietnam Veterans Against the War, or VVAW, held a set of public hearings on the war. For three days, vets relived the horror of Vietnam. My name's John Beitzel. I've witnessed the mutilation of bodies. This consisted of cutting off ears, plucking out teeth for souvenirs. The veterans sat at long tables. A team of volunteer filmmakers recorded the entire thing. 19 women and children were rounded up as Viet Cong suspects. And the lieutenant that rounded them up called the captain on the radio, and he asked what should be done with them. The captain simply repeated the order that came down from the colonel that morning, to kill anything that moves. There were some fishermen out in the ocean, and uh, a couple of our sergeants thought it would be a good sport to use them as target practice. So they swung their 50 calibers around, and uh, they just shot the shit out of them. We were on our first operation, and we were just shown how you destroy a village. Everything is set on fire. My squad leader personally ignited the first two hooches and then just told us to take care of the rest. On the next slide is a slide of myself. I'm uh, extremely shameful of it. It's me holding a dead body, smiling. We were hoping to expose to the American public what was genocide that was being committed in their name. Barry Romo had flown in from California for the hearings. He led the last panel on the last day. Which meant we went through two and a half days of people talking about the most horrible things. And I think we felt, or I felt, like we had to touch America's soul to stop it. At the time of the hearings, Lieutenant William Calley was on trial for the murder of civilians in Milai. Barry Romo and other veterans testifying in Detroit believed the U.S. military was using Calley as a scapegoat, that the Milai massacre was not an aberration. And what's been brought out during this whole testimony is that it's a general policy and not an isolated incident. It would be impossible with our background to go into a village and kill a woman and child unless we looked at those people as non-humans. Several hundred people packed the hotel ballroom to hear the testimony, but it got virtually no press coverage. Here they are uh, trying to share their experiences and to waken the public to what's happening in Vietnam, and they're still not being listened to. This is Richard Stasowitz again. He published an oral history of VVAW. So I think that actually led to a, a greater radicalization 
among some of the members in VVAW who saw that they needed to up the ante, so to speak, to develop new techniques and strategies to try to, you know, finally get the public to pay attention to what was happening. As in previous years, Washington is again the focal point for springtime demonstrations against the war in Vietnam. But never before have the ranks of protesters included so many veterans, men who fought in Vietnam and even some officers still on active duty. On April 18, 1971, VVAW finally started getting the national attention it wanted. Rallying began this afternoon in a park near Lincoln Memorial. Leaders expect more than a thousand by tomorrow. Then they begin a week of marches, lobbying public officials, make-believe war crimes hearings, and even simulated search-and-destroy missions like those they were sent on in Vietnam, only using toy guns this time. More than 1,500 veterans converged on Washington, D.C. They camped out on the National Mall. For five days, veterans fanned out across the city to protest the war and confront politicians. We just wanted to get down there and get the beast by the throat, which we did. Bill Branson had come in from California. We had a feeling we were doing something. We knew it was big time, but we didn't know how big. Each night, the national TV networks ran stories about the veterans protesting in Washington. One of those vets was John Kerry. He went on to be Secretary of State. Kerry spoke before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and attacked the idea that anti-war protesters were the enemies of American soldiers. In 1970, at West Point, Vice President Agnew said, some glamorize the criminal misfits of society while our best men die in Asian rice paddies to preserve the freedoms which those misfits abuse. And this was used as a rallying point for our effort in Vietnam. But for us, his boys in Asia, whom the country was supposed to support, his statement is a terrible distortion from which we can only draw a very deep sense of revulsion and hence the anger of some of the men who are here in Washington today. It's a distortion because we in no way considered ourselves the best men of this country, because those he calls misfits were standing up for us in a way that nobody else in this country dared to. Because so many who have died would have returned to this country to join the misfits in their efforts to ask for an immediate withdrawal from South Vietnam. The next day, the veterans assembled on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. They wanted to give their service medals and ribbons back to the government. Several hundred came to turn in medals, throwing them over a fence put up for tomorrow's demonstration. Their mood flickered between anger and mourning. My role was to line people up. Jim Murphy, an Air Force veteran, helped stage the protest. And I'm reminding people, when you get up there, take a deep breath, because it was really emotional. I got a Silver Star, Purple Heart, Army Commendation Medal, eight Air Medals, National Defense, and the rest of this garbage. It doesn't mean a thing. And think about what you want to say, who you want to dedicate this moment to. For Captain Roger P. Harrell, United States Marine Corps, the Distinguished Flying Cross. From Major Robert Kramer, United States Marine Corps, who also died needlessly, the Silver Star. What you want to say about the war, whatever you want to say, but just get it out. Robert Jones, New York, I symbolically return all Vietnam medals and other service medals given me by the power structure that has genocidal policies against non-white peoples of the world. Right on. Throw that medal as far as you can and celebrate the moment because you're letting go of some negative energy when you get rid of that metal. It felt great.
Barry Romo threw his service ribbons over the fence. It felt like like pulling a thousand tons off of my back. The veterans' five-day protest in Washington was followed by civilian demonstrations in the Capitol. Nixon continued to withdraw troops from Vietnam, which he'd been doing since he took office. At the same time, he ramped up the bombing of North Vietnam. The war kept going, but news outlets gave it less coverage. Americans were paying less attention. Anti-war veterans invented new ways to keep the war in the public's mind. An organization calling itself the Vietnam Veterans Against the War staged a number of unusual protests today, proclaiming it Operation Peace on Earth. Phase one was a takeover of the Statue of Liberty in New York. In Philadelphia, 25 anti-war veterans barricaded themselves inside the 250-year-old home of Betsy Ross, where the first American flag was made. Meanwhile, the Nixon administration did what it could to suppress the veteran anti-war movement. In the summer of 1972, thousands of veterans gathered in Miami to stage protests at the Republican National Convention, where President Nixon was to be renominated. But the government had spies in VVAW that were causing trouble. In Tallahassee, Florida today, a federal grand jury indicted six members of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War on charges of conspiring to disrupt the Republican National Convention in Miami Beach next month. Two more men were also charged. The group became known as the Gainesville Eight for the town where they allegedly plotted violence at the convention. VVAW was forced to mount a legal defense that was expensive and time-consuming. Richard Stasewitz says this damaged the organization. It required that the VVAW move away from their primary mission for at least a year, raising public awareness about what was happening with the war and to veterans, and cause them to instead spend a year defending themselves. In August 1973, a jury found the Gainesville Eight not guilty. But VVAW had been weakened. People in the organization began to distrust the other members, not sure who was an agent, who was not. By the time the Gainesville Eight were exonerated, the United States and Vietnam had signed a peace treaty. All the American troops had come home. The war was effectively over, at least for the U.S., and so was the anti-war movement. Historians don't agree about the extent to which the GI and veteran anti-war movement helped end the war. GI protests and rebellion certainly made it harder for the U.S. to wage war. But there's no question that participating in the anti-war movement could be healing and sometimes life-saving for veterans. And I'll tell you right now, if it wasn't for them, I'd be dead. This is Bill Branson. He now serves on the board of VVAW. We've had so many veterans over the years say that. that Without that VVAW, they'd never made it. Being able to sit there smoke some weed, drink some wine with a bunch of people and plot how to to go out and and do something significant to try and end the war. That meant a huge difference to us. VVAW wasn't the only veteran anti-war group. And in the years following the Vietnam War, these organizations have continued to campaign for peace and the well-being of veterans. One of the big legacies of the VVAW is its work with PTSD. 
where veterans began to talk about their experiences, to uh, share their experiences with one another, and to find ways of healing. VVAW pressed the federal government to have post-traumatic stress disorder recognized as a legitimate malady of war. The organization also played a crucial role in creating vet centers across the U.S., and VVAW and other veterans groups have spent decades trying to expose the health impacts of the defoliant Agent Orange on Americans and Vietnamese. The U.S. military sprayed millions of gallons of the toxic chemical on Vietnam. Back in 1971, during the demonstrations where veterans threw their medals onto the steps of the Capitol, they also staged a candlelit march around the White House. They carried an American flag, turned upside down, an international signal of distress. Veterans and active duty GIs used American symbols of liberty and democracy to remind the public that they were still fighting on behalf of their country, that they were still patriotic Americans, but now they were soldiers for peace. Historian Richard Stasiewicz. For them, going into the war, patriotism meant doing your duty, following the orders of your leaders, going to war to protect the United States. Stasiewicz says that as veterans worked to stop the war, their sense of patriotism deepened. Because they still held on to this ideal that, you know, democracy matters that as citizen soldiers in particular, that it was their duty in a democracy to speak out, and it was their duty to protect the ideals of the United States. We were trying to stand up against the political system, against what the president was telling us. Veteran and historian David Courtright. To say this war is wrong, this war is damaging our country, we love our country, and if we love our country and we stand with it, we want to stop this terrible war. Soldiers for Peace was produced by Kate Ellis and me, Stephen Smith. It was edited by Chris Julin. Mixing by Craig Thorson. Web editors Dave Mann and Andy Cruz. The APM Reports team includes Alex Baumhart, Sabby Robinson, and Shelley Langford. Fact-checking by Betsy Towner-Levine. The executive editor is Chris Worthington. Our theme music is by Gary Meister. You can find out more about the veteran and GI peace movement at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, browse our catalog of more than 100 documentary projects, check out our award-winning podcasts, and let us know what you think of this program. There's also a place to make a contribution to support our work. That's apmreports.org. Please help us spread the word about this show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your listening. This program is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. This is APM, American Public Media.